0: The biblical commentaries known as Mikra'oth Kedaloth have inspired and educated generations of Hebrew readers. Now, with the five volumes of the acclaimed English edition of Mikra'oth Kedaloth, The Commentator's Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the voices of Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Nachmanides, Rashbam, Abarbanel, Kimchi, and other medieval Bible commentators come alive. Speaking in a contemporary English translation annotated, and explicated for lay readers. Join us as we speak with Michael Karasik, editor of the Commentator's Bible. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Michael Karasik teaches biblical Hebrew at the University of Pennsylvania and is the weekday Torah reader at Historic Congregation Kesher Israel in Center City, Philadelphia. He received his Ph.D. in Bible and the Ancient Near East from Brandeis University. He is the compiler and translator of the JPS Tikraoth Gedaloth Commentator's Bible series, and in addition to numerous articles, is also the author of Theologies of the Mind in Biblical Israel and The Bible's Many Voices. Michael, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks so much. So, Michael, tell us about yourself before we begin to look at the Commentator's Bible series.
1: Uh I'm not sure how easy that's going to be but yes I'm a guy from Chicago who found out as a second career that I needed to become a bible scholar I did that eventually um but I had always been aimed at translating and my career as a bible scholar turns out to be uh, in the gig economy I'm really a freelancer or ever since before I went for my PhD. And one of the things that happened, I can tell the story at greater length if you're interested or it's on also my podcast website. Uh, I had a month, one summer when my wife was traveling, was going to be in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for a National Science Foundation grant. And she wanted me to come. I wasn't teaching that summer. What am I going to do in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for a month? And I thought I would translate the commentaries on uh what the Jews call the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. I think Christians call it the sacrifice of Isaac. I would translate the traditional commentaries. I I wouldn't have to have a hundred books. I only needed one and a little something to type on. And Having finished that, I came back to Philadelphia, where I had done some freelance work for the Jewish Public Publication Society that's located here. Um, I made a little version of the traditional Jewish Bible page out of the English that I had translated and showed it to the editor there to amuse her. And more or less out of the blue a few months later, she emailed me and said, we want to publish this. And that's how the project started. I still consider myself a Bible, Bible scholar rather than a scholar of the Middle Ages, which is where most of this material comes from. But um, as I said, people who want to read a little bit more about that can find me on the web and hear more of that story.
0: Would you tell us now about the commentator's Bible and its features, maybe giving us an orientation to the traditional role of Mikraot Gedalot within Judaism? Right.
1: So this is um, the traditional Mikraot Gedalot. It means something like big Bible, but it's a a plural word. So I'm not quite sure whether it means uh, the big book of Bible or whether it's talking about the format, there's a lot of Bible on the page. Um, You can find a sample of my English version, and you can also find pictures of an original kind of Mikra Otkidolot on the web for those who've never seen it before. This is not a particular book that I translated. It's a format. Uh, You have the Hebrew text of the Bible in the top center of the page and sometimes very, very little of it, only a couple of lines. Above it, one or more translations traditionally into Aramaic in the original Mikro, Gedolov, and all along the sides and the bottom, various different commentaries. So if there's one commentary in a book like that, it's always going to be the commentary of a guy named Rashi, Who lived just about a thousand years, was born almost a thousand years ago, 11th century France in a town called Troyes. I think it's about 120 miles southeast of Paris. And he is the quintessential Jewish commentator on the Bible and on the Babylonian Talmud, the two great books of Jewish learning. So he's like a, a gigantic figure, although his personality does not seem to be the kind of personality of someone who commands the stage the way he, in fact, does. If there are more commentaries on the page, there are certain ones that are very, very traditional and others that move on to the page or move off the page throughout the centuries. Um, There's a famous Jewish scholar named Isidore Tversky was also amazingly he was simultaneously one of the great scholars of Maimonides, the medieval Jewish philosopher and a Hasidic Rebbe which is a completely mind-blowing combination but he wrote an article about the Mikraot Gedolot in which he said the guy who actually shaped the page who created the page metaphorically was another commentator, who's also in my version, named Nachmanides, Moses ben Nachman, who lived in 13th century Spain. And how did he shape this page? By quoting earlier commentators and arguing with them. Or sometimes saying, you know, he got it, here's the answer more often saying, he says this, but he's wrong, or but I'm a little confused, and so forth. And the the further into the now 21st century you go, the more likely you are to find commentators quoting the earlier commentators. When I started this Commentators Bible Project, the first six months or more of working on it, I had to decide who I was going to put on the page, and I actually came up as far, maybe for about ten minutes, as the 19th century with a scholar from Lithuania called the Nitsi, Naftali Svi Yehuda Berlin, whose son I think, one of his descendants, Bar Ilan University in Israel, is named after. Um, but once I got into his commentary and into the slightly earlier 19th century commentary of Samuel David Luzzatto, or Shadal, as he's called in the Jewish world, Italian commentator, they were talking too much about the earlier commentators and not enough about the text, so I more or less drew a line after a guy from the Italian Renaissance named Ovidius Sforno, I have a few comments of. And so you're talking maybe 500 years' worth of late medieval, early modern commentary on the Bible that fit into my project. Uh, for most of it, for the, um, the last four volumes of the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, The four people who were on the main page almost in their entirety are Rashi, whom I've mentioned, his grandson, Rashbam, and Rashbam's contemporary, Abraham Ibn Ezra, two people from the 12th century, what uh, earlier scholars have called the 12th century Renaissance, focused much, much more on the straightforward meaning of the text. What do the words mean in Hebrew? Um, And then Nachmanides, who is in the 13th century, they are the core of the project. The book of Genesis, there's another commentator a little bit later than Abraham Ibn Ezra, and more or less in his ballpark, but also from closer to the world of Spain, and northern Spain, southern France, really, David Kimchi Radak, wrote a commentary on Genesis, but not on the rest of the Pentateuch. And then there's a whole bunch of other interesting people that I have little, little selections from on the page.
0: Now, how long did all of this translation work take you?
1: Right. It took me 17 years. I would say I spent about half my time uh half my working time during those 17 years on this project it took maybe five years before i started getting any royalties from it but i knew it was going to be uh worthwhile for people i know new people would want it and i knew that i was gaining a tremendous amount by doing it so that made it worthwhile and i've had um actually for the entirety of that project i had more or less just started a kind of a permanent part-time gig at the University of Pennsylvania teaching Biblical Hebrew. And so I had access to Penn's wonderful Jewish libraries. And for the first two years of this project, I actually had a little desk in the Penn Center for Advanced Jewish Studies, now called the Katz Center, in a beautiful, fabulously beautiful architecturally Building on Walnut Street in Philadelphia, overlooking Independence Mall. And so I could ride up and down and go into the library and grab any book that I needed for those first two years. It really gave me a nice push. How did you get so proficient in Hebrew? Just grew up reading it? Um, That's a complicated question to answer. I went to, I, I learned how to decode the Hebrew alphabet as a kid. I'm going to tell you this story just because it's amusing. I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, when I was nine years old. And in Sunday school, we spent an entire year going through a workbook called Rocket to Mars. And the amazing thing that you probably didn't realize is that on Mars, everyone speaks English, but they write it in the Hebrew alphabet. So during this year, I learned how to decode the Hebrew alphabet. That's so long ago, they were actually still teaching us the Eastern European pronunciation of Hebrew. Um, and the next year, we were going to get a workbook called Rocket to Venus, where they actually speak Hebrew and write it in Hebrew letters. But we moved, so I I never got that. But I learned little bits through my synagogue, Hebrew school, and golf services, and that sort of thing. When I was 19, I went to Israel and spent six months on what they call an ulpan, which is um, a name for various different kinds of courses to train people how to speak modern Hebrew. I was living on a kibbutz and volunteering there. And I've spent more time back there. And then back here in the United States, I spent a lot of time while I was working as a computer programmer taking courses at a, a place in Chicago then called Spertus College, I think now it's the Spurtus Institute, and I actually took a course in translation there, and I learned more Hebrew, I learned more Bible, and I learned more the word for The kind of material that I do in the commentator's Bible is Parshanut, which I guess means exegesis or something like that. But I learned all of those subjects there and built them up. And then I plunged in and learned as much more as I could of what I needed to know by actually doing it for
0: 17 years. I'd noticed Abarbanel's penchant for asking the right questions of the text. And so I was delighted to see that his questions are included in this commentary series. Are there any other hermeneutical habits or tendencies of commentators you picked up on through your translation work?
1: Well, they are all different, and that's what is so what's so rewarding for me. what I would say is the contrasts that I make, and I don't mean this to be invidious, but I guess maybe contrasts always are. I was told early in this project. Um, by a scholar named Peter Oakes from the University of Virginia. You know, they're doing a Christian project like this as well. Oh, yes. Uh, it's called, and it's been published since then, it's called the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. I had a look at it and I read the more or less memoir by Thomas Oden, who I guess was in charge of this project. And they, in that, that series, we very, very careful to take ancient Christian commentary, more or less the rough equivalent of the kind of stuff I was doing in the Jewish world, but only material that was part of what I think is called the katina, C-A-T-E-N-A, is that the right word? Katina, right? The chain of tradition. They had They had to make sure that Everyone was on board with it before they would put it in the ancient Christian commentary. And the point of a mikra ot gadolot, maybe not the point of it, but the outcome of a mikra ot gadolot is to show you that not everybody is on board with everything, and most people are not on board with it at all. And on one side of the page, you'll have a guy stating X and the other part of the page the guy will say he doesn't know what he's talking about don't listen to him because the jewish perspective on the bible i as i understand it is that it is something you are supposed to occupy yourself with it doesn't say anywhere learn x chapter of the bible today memorize the bible although people certainly do that And there certainly is a, I guess the English word for it is a lectionary. There's a certain portion, there are certain portions of the Bible that are read on particular weeks of the year over and over. And the main one, of course, is to read the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, from beginning to end and then start over. But the blessing that you say when you are studying Torah, which doesn't mean the Pentateuch, but it means any traditional Jewish text from the the Bible on through the Talmud and later material, too, is considered studying Torah. The blessing that you say is that we are commanded to occupy ourselves with this material. And so it's very easy to do that on a page of the Mikra Ot Gedolot, because you don't have to start at the beginning and read to the end of the page. You can jump here and there and follow lots of different paths in your study.
0: So, Michael, do these various medieval commentators form alternate or contrary understandings of Torah, or do you see them as something more like a conversation?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, All of these guys share at least one thing, is that they're very, very careful readers, and they're very committed to understanding the text of the Bible. They come from different places on planet Earth, although the traditional Mikra Otkidolot is heavily concentrated in Europe, not quite Christian Europe, because one of the main commentators grew up in Muslim Spain and spent 50 years there before he moved to the Christian side of things. But They have different personalities as well, and the personalities lead them in different ways. So I already mentioned uh, Rashbam and Ibn Ezra, the 12th century guys. This is an era when not just in the Jewish world, but also in the Christian world, and a lot of it was happening in Paris, very close to where uh, Rashbam was and where Ibn Ezra passed through. The Christian world is also saying, look at the straightforward meaning of the text right now. Let's focus on what the writer was trying to say in plain Hebrew. In Rashbam's grandfather, Rashi's generation, or at least he personally, understood that basically everything that rabbis of the traditional Talmud and Midrash were saying about the text was true in some sense whether or not it was factual because some of the things they say contradict each other but that there was certain truth there and that when there was a puzzle in the biblical text that you couldn't think your way through in a straightforward way you could grab something from that material that would explain why the text was written that way. Jumping to the other side of my 12th century Renaissance. Guys, we have Nachmanides living in an era and in a portion of Spain just before the Zohar is going to appear there. So his focus is very, very mystical. I would call it Kabbalistic, but what people understand by Kabbalah today actually comes from a later era than him but mystic makes it work for him as well. And he very, very frequently offers broad hints about what the text is trying to say mystically, but because that's something that you don't want to teach everyone, he doesn't say it very clearly. And a number of books of his commentary that are published nowadays, both Hebrew versions of it, and translations of it, not all of them, but a surprising number to me, will give his commentary until the moment when he starts to say something on the mystical side, and then say, now he's talking mysticism, and we're leaving that out. The, the good reason to do that is that if you don't understand that material, a lot of what he says is not tremendously comprehensible. But I tried to put it in my version, even when I don't necessarily understand what he's talking about. One of the interesting things about him, in terms of interaction with the earlier commentators, is his relationship with Abraham ibn Ezra, the commentator who was from Spain, but from Muslim Spain by the time of Nachmanides, A century later and further north, he's living in Christian Spain. But Abraham Ibn Ezra, though he was from Spain, um, got his education in a Muslim and an Arabic-speaking environment. And Naqmanides says about him, quoting a verse in Proverbs, I'm going to interact with Abraham Ibn Ezra from a place of open rebuke and concealed love. I found it very, very remarkable. And the thing that sticks in my head, uh, I don't have the details in front of me of this particular one, but there's a place where he says about Abraham Ibn Ezra, he's on the right track here, but he doesn't really get it because he did not have a teacher. He figured out this stuff, some of this stuff on his own, but he didn't have a teacher to point him in the right direction. I thought it was very interesting.
0: Are there any other commentator samples that you can share with us?
1: Sure. Uh, if I may, I'll, one of my favorite examples is another one involving Nachmanides. I must tell you, I once taught a course on this at Penn, or a, a, few, a course that had a few weeks of this in it. Um, a course by David Stern, who's at Harvard now, that he used to give called great Jewish books. And the Mikra Ot Kedolot was one of the great Jewish books. When he was on sabbatical one year, I taught the course. And a student in the course who was a Buddhist from Hong Kong said, I really, really like Nachmanides. Because, he was reading my English translation, of course. But Nachmanides lays it out for you. He's making an argument. He's trying to get from here to there. And he shows you exactly what... Uh, how he's how he's getting there he was not a lawyer he was a doctor actually by profession as many of these people were but maybe that's why i like giving examples from him but one of my favorite ones is an argument that he had with rashi sometimes he just says i don't understand how rashi could say this or rashi misunderstands the talmud rashi the one who taught the the next thousand years of Jews how to understand the Talmud, but Nachmanides is perfectly happy saying he, he didn't understand it here. But here's a case where Rashi is talking about realia, real things on planet Earth. And in the book of Exodus, when they're talking about setting up the tabernacle, they tell you that when they're having a census in Exodus um, 32 and in other places, places in that story they're weighing things out by a weight called a shekel well that's now the the coin in israel is called a a shekel but it's a word that means a weight in the bible it meant a weight of silver and at a certain point in rashi's commentary to exodus he says um, a shekel is four gold coins half an ounce according to the coins that they use in cologne today Nachmanides comes along in his commentary to a different verse on the Torah, but later in the book of Exodus. And he says, Rashi's wrong about that, and here's what misled him, yada, yada, yada. People can look in the commentator's Bible for the details or on on my website. But an amazing thing then happened. Some of your listeners will know that in the Middle Ages, when they didn't have baseball, the fun sport was to get the Jews to debate with the Christians about religion. And most of the time, the fix was in and the Christians were going to win. It was kind of like wrestling, right? Everybody knew the Christians were going to win the debate. But Commodities was in a debate like this that apparently the fix was not in. The king of Spain or of Catalonia, I'm not sure exactly which part of Spain this was taking place in, uh, said, well, I, I would actually like to hear an honest debate on this. Let's get it going. And Nacomonides at least, claimed that he won the debate. And he maybe did because someone told him shortly afterwards, Spain is too hot for you. If I were you, I would leave Spain now. He did. He went to the land of Israel, and in Israel, in a town called Acre, uh, on the north side of Haifa Bay, a very beautiful town from my memory of having been there, he saw someone showed him a coin that had ancient Hebrew writing on it, what we call Paleo-Hebrew. He couldn't read it, but there were Samaritans there, and the Samaritan Torah, I think, is still written in that script, and they could read the coin. And they told him this is a shekel. And he weighed it. And he said, oh, looks like Rashi was correct. And he sent back a number of corrections to his Torah commentary from Israel to Spain. And one long paragraph telling the story of finding this coin. And then they found another coin that was a half shekel, probably the one that was supposed to be used in Exodus 32. And says. Lends great support to what Rashi said. So he was not ever argumentative for the sake of argument, but because he wanted to get to the truth. And when he was wrong and Rashi was right, he I won't say fessed up to it. It was important to him to say that he wanted to get to the right answer. the The footnote to the asterisk to that story is he was not looking at a shekel from biblical times. He was actually looking at Coins minted by Bar Kokhba from the second century revolt against the Romans, 132 to 135 CE, who was trying to sort of be a revivalist and use the ancient script and have his own coins. But for the purposes of the story, you're seeing Nachmanides pursuing the truth, not puffing himself up, he's wrong, I'm right, but because he wanted to know the real answer. So that's very meaningful to me.
0: After all of your translating work, did you come away with a favorite commentator, one that resonates most with your own reading of Torah?
1: So first, let me tell you that when I had been working on this project for about two weeks in the fall of 2001, I actually started it on September 11th, 2001, believe it or not, um... So after about two weeks, someone asked me, which commentator do you like the best? And at that stage of the game, I was thinking, "Um, I barely know their names. Okay, But he wanted to tell me who he liked the best. And I came back and told the story to my wife and she told me who she liked the best. And I'm going to dodge the question. I do like Nachmanides a lot. But I like Rosh Bam because I think he is, I find him to be the most like me as a scholar. I find Abraham Ibn Ezra very amusing, and he didn't want to be, so I apologize to him, but that. And everybody likes Rashi. I once heard, uh, no, this was not when I heard him speak. I, I read a book by Elie Wiesel, uh, the Nobel Prize laureate, may he rest in peace. And his introduction to the book started with these three words. I love Rashi. And everybody loves Rashi, even if you disagree with him. There's a sweetness that comes off the page from him. So these are guys I spent 17 years with, and not only the big four, but half a dozen others. And um, they're my friends. I don't want to say which friend I like better and which friend I like the less. It's obviously only in one direction. But from my perspective, I feel very close to them. And my wife would come home from work and say, uh, you know, how are the guys? They're fine. You know, We we had a good time today.
0: Michael, what's next on the horizon for you in terms of projects, translation, or or writing?
1: That's a difficult question to answer. Um, I I have some big changes coming up for me. I've told Penn this is my last year of teaching. I'm expecting to be living in Israel later this year. Um, I'm still a freelancer. I still need to find work that Pays, and I can't just write whatever I want to write, although I have a bunch of interesting projects. The thing that I really feel like I must do, that I have a duty to do, almost in the way that I felt I had a duty to do this commentator's Bible project, is to do uh, either a book and or a video course on biblical poetry. Part of my work at Penn Teaching Intermediate Biblical Hebrew, the last semester of the four-semester sequence evolved in what seemed at the time to be a very natural way into a focus on reading poetic texts from the Bible. And one year, I had an amazing group of eight students, undergraduates, graduate students in various disciplines, and one or two people who were not students at Penn at all, but who were sitting in to take paying to take the, the course as auditors. And that was an amazing group. There was just something about that group. And at the end of that year, I realized I've got something about this that I need to show the wider public. And I haven't yet quite found the the way to do that. And looking for the way to do that. And make a little bit of money, which is still a concern for me, has not yet happened. But I have a, all kinds of amazing projects I'd love to do. There's, there's something that also hap- that I actually found out about this when I was at the Center for Jewish Studies, maybe in the first month of the Commentators' Bible project. Um, there's a guy from Pennsylvania history named James Logan. He was essentially the guy, if I understand correctly, that William Penn sort of opened Pennsylvania and said, I'm going back to England, run the store for me, which he did. But he was an extremely learned man, um, had an amazing library, knew lots and lots of ancient languages, and had a book, a little handwritten notebook, maybe the size of one's hand as well all handwritten listing every word in the bible in alphabetical no it's in genesis it's in biblical order listing every word in the bible that's a hepax legomenon every word that only occurs once starting at the beginning of the bible and running all the way through how how did he compile this i don't think anyone knows and I have a project which would take an enormous amount of work and might be worthwhile in the end or not, of comparing his list of Hepax Legomena with the lists published by um, a scholar named Frederick Greenspan, who was at the University of Denver and then moved to Florida Atlantic University to take over for Nahum Sarna down there. He was a student of Sarna's at Brandeis. And another scholar named Chaim Cohen, um, may he rest in peace, who taught at Ben-Gurion University for a long time. But he was a a guy from New York. They both published lists of hapax Legomena in the Bible, because it's hard to decide what they are. And I wanted to compare their lists with James Logan's and see if I could learn anything about him or about the Bible doing that.
0: Those sound like terrific projects.
1: Michael, if I can say one more thing, which needs to be on the air, I think for those who have not yet seen a page of the commentator's Bible, and perhaps even for those who have seen it, I want to say, and this is nothing to do with bragging because I didn't design the layout. I want to mention another woman um, who did this, a woman named Adrian Dutton who did lots of beautiful covers for JPS books and she designed this page. She wasn't a Jew. She um, took a look. I sent her some pages of the traditional text and I said, you know, you have these, these things have four lines, two columns at the top with four lines each. And then they shrink out toward the margin and put the Torah text. And I gave her a few very, very basic instructions and some pages to look at and, she made the page that you now have seen, which is absolutely crammed with material, but unlike lots and lots of such pages it 's very I find it very open and welcoming and inviting and there 's lots of subtle touches that you don't notice unless you're looking for them um and she's responsible for it all and she died, the Exodus volume is the first one that I did. She died before it came out. And at the little book launch that we had for it here in Philadelphia, my wife met her daughter. And her daughter told me that she had felt, she died of lung cancer. Nobody, which no one at JPS knew that she had at the time. Her daughter told my wife, she had a very... Um, rewarded in some way that she had been able to do this as her more or less last project. And I, I really want to to highlight her and give her credit because nobody reads, you know, the, the pages at the beginning of the book, but every page in the commentator's Bible, all five volumes is her gift to the people who are learning from it. So
0: what a story. I'm glad you shared that. Michael, it's been delightful to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Great pleasure.
0: It's fun talking with you. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.